This is an Alexandrian Media podcast. Hello. Welcome. 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 Let me show you to your seat. Front row center. As you read Wolfram's Parzival, which is a considerable work, in a translation, it's about 415 pages. The last three pages are an outline of Lohengrin as Wagner has it. Trumpeter swans, like we have here on grounds, are one of the largest flying species of bird. So a male can weigh up to 30 pounds. They can have a wingspan over eight feet, not surpassed by too many other birds in either of those aspects. When he says, a knight in shining armor appears, what is he getting at? I love the Rolling Stones' emotional rescue. I will be your knight in shining armor coming to your emotional rescue. It's a metaphor. The costumes are so integral. We express ourselves in how we cloak ourselves, in how we open the colors, when we open the colors, and to whom, for what. That's very different. He has made it so clear, not only with the incredible legato lines that that Elsa gets, and the sort of more, sort of pure de Legion crack, uh, you know, these huge jumps and these angular lines that Ortrud gets. Welcome to Front Row Center. Hi, I'm Mike Bolton. Thanks for listening to this podcast. It has been a minute since our last one because life has a crazy way of getting in the way of things sometimes. And uh, we are concentrating on Wagner's Lohengrin today, an opera that hasn't been performed at the Met since 2006. So this is a kind of a special occasion, right? So we have five guests that will help us look at the piece and some of its themes and elements in maybe a different way. Dr. Margaret Davini, she's the Associate Professor of German Emerita at Temple University. Well, she brings us right back to the beginning and tells us all about the origins of the Lohengrin story. And how much do you know about swans? If you're like me, you don't know anything. So we have the Philadelphia Zoo's curator of birds, Pete Bebo, and he helps us to solve that problem. Well, if it's a Wagner opera, you can't not talk about the music and the density of the work itself. I turned to William Berger, the author of Wagner Without Fear, Learning to Love and Even Enjoy Opera's Most Demanding Genius, to help us sort of rethink what we think we know about this glorious opera and maybe help us reconsider it as well. So much has been talked about the costumes in this new production that many of you may be seeing in the HD theaters. So I had to ask a Met chorister to come and talk about their experience in the work and in the rehearsal process. I'm delighted to have soprano Helena Brown share some of her insights. And then finally, Christine Gerke joins us taking time from an incredibly busy schedule to sit down and talk to us about Ortrud, German, and uh, maybe even a Ouija board or two. Stay with us. Enjoy your view from front row center. We're really excited now to have Marge Davini uh, from Temple University, where she is an associate professor of German Emerita there she um, is working on the fifth edition of her mythology textbook with a colleague, expanding the scope and enriching theoretical discussions. And in addition to refreshing her middle high German skills, she also translates early German American documents. She's a member of the American Translators Association, the International Society for the Study of Time, 
the Historical Society of Pennsylvania, among other organizations. And Marge, I am delighted to have you here on Front Row Center to help us talk about German mythology. This is awesome. Thanks very much. It's good to be here. Yeah. So we had a pre-conversation. Actually, I should preface this by saying that, gosh, back in 1982, 83, I saw the movie Excalibur on, I don't know, HBO or Cinemax or whatever, and just fell in love with Arthurian legend. And we know that Lohengrin plays a real part in that. Um, can you, for anybody who doesn't know Lohengrin's role in all of this, could you give us a, qu- a quick refresher on where he, what's his part of Arthurian legend? The part is actually rather short. Uh, it turns out that there are similar characters, um, a Lohengrin type character uh, very early on, but it comes into, uh, we might say high literature after appearing in Cretien's uh, Arthurian romances, we have Lohengrin in Wolfgang von Eschenbach's Parzifal. One of the interesting things is, I think, that when most people talk about Wagner's Lohengrin, they credit it to Wolfram's Parzifal. As you read Wolfram's Parzifal, which is a considerable work, in a translation, it's about 415 pages. The last three pages are an outline of Lohengrin as v- Wagner has it. So to me, that was very surprising right, because right. Um, you see where Wagner was very familiar with that outline, but we don't have much of a mention before it at all. There are only two short mentions in Parzifal, one where Parzifal says Lohengrin is my son. And then it goes through all sorts of different uh, adventures, parts of false adventures, Garwin's adventures. And then at the end, there's a wrap up. Uh, parts of tells what happened to each of the important people in the life of parts of all. And just when it's almost finished, it stops and it says, would you like to hear more? Just like that, as if he had an extra uh, parchment that he could write on. And he says, would you like to hear more? And then there's this three page Precy, really, of Lohengrin. And if you read that carefully and compare it to the opera, Wagner read that, I think. It was really, most of it is there. He updated it um, to include different characters and I think a different um, tack, you could say, that fits his audience and his time. But um, after parts after of Wolfgang's parts of all and Cretien's Arthurian romance, uh, you do get some more imitators, translators. Uh, The translations are sometimes rather fanciful. Uh, The imitators are taking what, just what um, Wolfram did, taking characters from somewhere else and plugging them into his translation, which is not quite what the previous was. You always get the uh, creativity with it. So that's where we end up getting Ortrud and uh, Telramund and all of these other characters being infiltrated into this this story because you were very gracious. You sent me a, a, just a snapshot of the part of the Lohengrin story in Parzival, and it's it's a page and a half. <laughs> There's yes, nothing really. there. And what I found um, so interesting how brief it is. Like as you mentioned, it is really the framework for other things to come after it. Okay. This idea of the swan 
prince or the swan knight goes back hundreds of years before it shows up yes. in Eschenbach's work. There are even uh, there is even the, the story of swans, not necessarily in this context, but back among the Greeks, the, the swan was a symbol of light, of goodness, even of transformation, um, always positive. And then it seems, at least, to to move through folklore, and as it moves through folklore, you get positive and negative. And it, when you get into the nineteenth century. Um, you get Grimm's fairy tale story called The Six Swans, and it's about turning children into swans. And then that takes a life of its own and goes on as, as other stories of swans. But as the swan pulling the boat, um, that must have come in pretty much in the 1100s, in the 12th century. But the swans, for the most part, in folklore, the swans were negative, And in um, literature, this one is positive. One thing that I think is interesting about the swan and trying to relate one type of story to the other is uh, realizing that in folklore, the swans are often transformed. And so the children are transformed into swans. Um, I want to get back to um, Wolfram von Eschenbach. Here is a character. Mm-hmm. Here, sorry, not a character. Here's an historical figure. Yeah who writes this Parsifal romantic poem, who ends up showing up in Wagner's Tannhäuser, whose Parsifal ends up as a Wagner opera. So <laughs> clearly we see a theme with Wagner as well. But who was Wolfram historically? Historically, evidently, we don't know too much about him. We okay. know, actually, there are a lot of clues in Parsifal. In Parsifal, he mentions Vir Bayern, and as in Bavaria. And uh, there are places you can trust, I mean, can trace in Bavaria that are Eschenbach. Franconia uh, spans some of what would be Bavaria and then to the west, like into Alsace and so forth. And so he could have come as far west, come from as far west as that. But, um, and his birth dates are between 1160 and 1180. (laughs) It's not not very exact, to, to say the least. But uh, he had left a lot of works. He was well known. He traveled a lot. He um, was a knight, was a poet. He says himself that he was illiterate. He also says, uh, he, in another place, he says he was dictated to. I was told, this, well, you, he said, I, I was told this story. It was written by Kiot. And that part of Parsifal seems to me like he's just trying to say something to bring out interest because he's always so interested in connecting with his audience. Uh, sometimes you see things that he's just saying it, I think, to to not just rile the audience, but interest the audience. So he says, you know, I didn't hear that. I, I didn't, I couldn't write that, but Keot gave it to me. But then he goes on to um, illuminate things that show you that he he was not illiterate. How did he know Cretien? Did someone read Cretien to him? How did he know the other things? Um, at the end, after this brief synopsis of uh, Lohengrin, he has a little paragraph, the last thing in the whole work that says, um, now if I've pleased my audience with this, especially the women, and if I've pleased at least one woman, this will have all been worth it. So he gets this little plug in for his audience in general and some lovely, lovely lady in particular. And, and that's the end. 
Uh, and there are so many places where he speaks to the audience. And especially with the do you want to hear more? Uh, you know, that. Um, Who would be reading this? I can't say a whole lot about that, but surely they were upper class because there weren't books. I mean, there were things, there were manuscripts that were copied and then put into various libraries. Uh, people, sometimes knights moved them around, but not too often. And uh, to my knowledge, uh, there was a lot of uh, reading by poets who were traveling poets. They would read their own works. They would tell other stories and sometimes they would read the other stories. But um, not you, there was no, you know, no library that you could choose from. Well, Marge Divini, thank you so much for sharing a lot of this very fascinating, interesting discussion about Lohengrin and its mythological origins here on Front Row Center. I think uh, everybody will get a, a kick out of it as much as I did. Thanks very much for having me. Dr. Margaret Divini, the Associate Professor of German Emerita at Temple University. Thanks so much, Marge, for being part of that conversation. I tell you, talking to her was like talking to an old friend, even though uh, she and I had just met. Such a lovely person. Pete Bebo from the Philadelphia Zoo will talk about swans in just one second. But before we get to that, I wanted to tell you about a friend of mine, Paolo Faustini, and his program, Serenades Coral Travel. He has a unique coral cultural summer program that brings together music lovers and singing lovers from all across the country and the world to create music over several days as they perform in churches and various other places in the area. This year, they are going to Conversano in Italy, a sort of off the beaten track a little bit, but a lovely town of art and history and palaces. And it's a really phenomenal time with some really quality music making as well. If you are interested in learning more about traveling to Italy, singing, making new friends, visit serenadescoral.com. That's serenadescoral.com and learn more information about this year's trip to Conversano in Puglia, Italy, and get on their mailing list for next year's trip. I'll put this away. And now we take a moment to learn more about swans from Pete Bebo, who is the curator of birds at the Philadelphia Zoo. The zoo is America's first zoo. The charter for the zoo was first signed on March 21st, 1859, but because of the Civil War, the opening was delayed 15 years, and then it did open on July 1st, 1874. Well, if that's not enough to at least pique your interest in the zoo, let's talk to Pete and have him share some information about swans. Welcome, Pete Bebo, waterfowl expert and part of the waterfowl team. Thanks, Pete, for being with us. Yeah, glad to be here, Mike. What is your official title at the Philadelphia Zoo? My official title is Curator of Birds. It's a pretty special place, uh, historically speaking. Yeah, Philadelphia Zoo is the oldest zoo in the country. Uh, this place is steeped in an amazing amount of history, so I'm happy to be a part of it. I'd love for folks to come to the zoo, and all our birds are out and able to be seen any day of the week. We're here to talk about swans, these incredibly beautiful, graceful really kind of iconic animals because of their beauty. Uh, I think swans are beautiful. And I can, when you see them swimming across the pond, I think you can 
absolutely understand why they found a place in our art, you know, in many aspects. I think they're beautiful and impressive. It's easy to understand how they could be inspirational to someone. I know nothing about zoology. I know nothing about swans other than they show up in Wagner's Lohengrin. Tell me a little bit about what their characteristics are like. What is their life cycle like? What 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 makes a swan a swan? You know, I think swans, uh, especially in our area here in North America, um, are really, and, and I would say in Northern Europe, are really iconic. They are typically very, very large animals. Trumpeter swans, like we have here on grounds, are one of the largest flying species of bird. So a male can weigh up to 30 pounds. They can have a wingspan over eight feet, and they're not surpassed by too many other birds in either of those aspects. Uh, and that's, there are uh, over 10,000 species of birds. And they're, they're up there in the top three. <laughs> so, and now I do specify flying birds because there are birds like ostriches and emus that would far outstrip them in weight and size. But for, a, for an animal, they can defy gravity being uh, 30 pounds and have an eight-foot wingspan. So does their incredibly long neck have anything, does that help them aerodynamically or anything like that? I think, uh, I don't think it helps them aerodynamically, but it would help them get food. Uh, So a lot of their diet would be aquatic vegetation, invertebrates, uh, maybe fish and fish eggs. Um, And what they're doing with that is you see them swimming across the pond and then they reach down, they're getting that vegetation off the the bottom. uh, So that long neck gives them an edge over there. What's their personalities like? How are, are they easy to take care of? Are they friendly? Are they, do you keep your distance? Uh, I've worked with a few swans in my day and some of them are very pleasant. Many of them are not what I would describe as pleasant. <laughs> um, <laughs> so they are, uh, they are a large animal and they are territorial. So for us as keepers and animal care folks, Every day we have to enter their territory, and they see that as a challenge coming from another large animal entering their territory. They certainly appreciate us getting them their breakfast. Uh, they don't appreciate us being there. So it's not like you're training them like you would train a dog. Oh, here comes Pete. He's got food for us. Uh, and we can. Um, and they do. I, I think all the animals will recognize us as we're working with them. The more we work with them, the more they recognize us. And a lot of the birds that we work with do get excited about our presence, especially in terms of getting their, their meal. And it is, it is totally possible to train any of these animals, just like you made a dog. The difference being that all of these animals, even if they've been in uh, a zoological setting over generations are still not a uh, domesticated uh, domestic animal, right? Like you would think of as a dog that uh, is truly part of our lives there. They, they think they, I'm anthropomorphizing, but <laughs> they think they think of us as uh, something very separate than that. So if they're very territorial, do you have to be careful about how many swans or other animals are in the area with them? Yeah, absolutely. On grounds right now at the zoo, we have two species of swan. We have the trumpeter swan, a male-female pair. We also have a black-neck swan, which is a smaller swan species from South America. We can manage them somewhat differently. Right now, we have the single black neck swan and with some other geese, some storks, and they all get along fine. Now, with our trumpeter swans, we have a lot of guests that come in uh, unintentionally on our part. There are a lot of Canada geese and mallards that, that hang out in that space. 
and they tolerate them. But I think anything that they think looks too much like another swan, too much like a threat, they would they would try and kick out. So a big human coming in uh, seems like a threat to them. So how do they show their aggression? What swans will first do is they'll start hissing at you. It's a very loud, unpleasant sounding hiss. They'll also threaten you with their wings, so they'll kind of uh, take their wings and and flap them together. They call it wing beating. Um, and if they decide you're really a big threat and they've decided to pick a fight with you, they will run at you beating those wings. They, they have a lot of power behind them. They have a lot of muscle in their chest behind those wings. So they're really trying to scare you off. Yeah. Yeah, I think they would try and scare you off before they actually pick a fight. And you mentioned that you have a pair of trumpeter swans. They mate for life. They do, yeah. So I think the term mating for life uh, gets brought up in the context of a lot of animals. Certainly, I think it's uh, uh, something that we as humans find admirable. But in a biological sense, I would say that mating for life does mean you mate for the life of your partner. So if that partner passes away or gets lost, the animals do usually move on and try and find another mate. Interesting. Is there a mating ritual with swans? I don't think that swans have as elaborate a mating ritual as you might see for some other birds. Um, But groups of swans do tend to congregate in areas when they're outside of the breeding season. Um, And then they kind of size each other up. The animals do pair up and then they'll kind of go together as a pair and find a place to nest. Okay. You're in a zoological environment. How do swans and just the birds that you care for in general, how do they react to people? I mean, yes, there's a distance and there's barriers, but during COVID, there was no one around. But did, did you sense any changes with how your waterfowl were reacting because that human presence just was gone? Uh, I think there are some, I think it's very dependent on the individual um, from what I could see during COVID. Um, I think there were some birds that I could see would utilize their space differently in the daytime than they would when guests would normally be present. And then you could kind of notice them going back once we start allowing people back on grounds to what would be a more typical use of their spaces. Um, So I think they do react to it. I don't think that it was uh, necessarily a net positive or negative either way. Um, But I think we could see them acting differently. Pete, thanks for sharing your insights about swans, the work you do at the Philadelphia Zoo. And I can't encourage folks enough to visit the oldest zoo in America here in Philadelphia super easy to get to there's ample parking it's easily accessible by public transportation both by a trolley and by bus it's just a great day for families kids adults and a good time for just anybody thanks for having me mike i will have to share that there are no physical or animated swans in the francois girard production of lohengrin if you are attending that on the 18th as part of the Met HD series, but it was great to learn more about swans from Pete Bebo, who is the curator of birds at the Philadelphia Zoo. Find out more information about the zoo, all 42 acres of it, at its website, philadelphiazoo.org. I am Mike Bolton. Thank you for listening to Front Row Center. Uh, This has been a blast of a podcast to put together um, some really, well, everybody's been fascinating. Uh, the challenge with trying to do a one-hour-ish podcast is that a lot of information ends up on the cutting room floor, and which is just a shame because uh, 
these conversations have been delightfully rich. One of those delightfully rich conversations was with William Berger from the Metropolitan Opera and also the, the author of several books on opera. He helps us dig into Lohengrin in maybe a different perspective. Well, I am thrilled to be joined by William Berger, who many of you, if not all of you know, from the Metropolitan Opera radio broadcast, the Sirius XM broadcasts, and also the author of numerous books on opera, including Wagner Without Fear, Learning to Love Wagner. William Berger, thanks for being on Front Row Center. It is a real pleasure to see you and get the chance to talk to you about Lohengrin. Thank you for having me, Mike. Any day I get to talk about Lohengrin is a good day. Why is that? It's at the center of everything that interests me. Not only of Wagner's, um, Wagner's whole output, every issue in Wagner is present and emphasized in Lohengrin. But not only that, every issue that interests me in art and its relation to life, politics, if you will, um, how opera comes up in so many things, it's all in Lohengrin. It's interesting. Here we have this germ of Wagner's continuing, continuing fascination with faith, with spirituality, um, going back to the original Wolfram von Eschenbach um, <laughs> page and a half on Lohengrin in Parzival. You know, you have this almost Virgin Mary-like character who's put to the test. All women, all women should be holy and, and faithful, but yet, damn it, if they don't, to hell with them all. Um, the, all of these ideas that keep coming up why do you think they were such a fascination for Wagner? Wagner's women. Now, there's a, a whole weird subject, but one of the things that is interesting about Elsa is the way Wagner saw it. Elsa is us, hmm. everyone, gender nonspecific, that he saw uh, this myth, this ancient legend, myths, whatever you want to call it, um, as having a lot of resonance with the myth of Semele. Uh, do you remember that one? That shows up in Alfred sometimes, where the mortal woman mm -hmm. is involved with Zeus and um, Hera to deal with her jealousy, tell, convinces Semele to force her lover to reveal himself in his full splendor, which Zeus has to do. Because, you know, you make promises and myth that, you know, I promise the better one. And then he does, and she's consumed, bursts into flame. And, and there are a lot of toxic masculinity issues in that, definitely, about, you know, well, any male in its full unleashed power is, is too much. But Bogner also, and he spoke very intelligently about this, that this is the condition of the human in relation to the divine that you can only ask so much. You can only spend so much of your time wondering what God or whatever you want to call it is. And the rest of the, the rest of it, you have to just sort of take at, well, face value, yeah. not because it's right or pious, but because it, it will kill you. Elsa Paul Rappant is an individual 
besides a woman. She is an individual in a vulnerable position. She is an individual who is, and this is important when the political and spiritual overlap, she is a person on the border. It, it is a barbaric time. This is very important. It is a time when you, you kill or be killed. And, you know, we could be all shocked. Oh, how could, how could people, you know, how could Christians? No, this is the dark ages, for lack of a better word. I know recent scholarship doesn't like that. He picked that very specifically. And she is in a particularly vulnerable place on a riverbank. Wait, wait, nudge, nudge. On the borders of, is this Germany? Is this not Germany? Is it the Holy Roman Empire? Is it not the Holy Roman Empire? What is that? Um, which comes up elsewhere in Vaughware, of course. And I think that's something we could all relate to. Mm -hmm. We are all on the border. Or, or we feel like we are at all times. But yet, also, that on the border, spiritually, between being a mere mortal and being something beyond that is reflected in her music. She's a, she's the original Lady Gaga, isn't she? She's kind of out there, right? I really, I, I didn't want to editorialize on how much I love this production of Francois Girard. I've, let me put it this way. I really appreciate stagings of this opera that take her seriously because she and everybody else, because of the nature of this as a romantic capital R fairy tale, can fall into high camp very easily. And especially her character that, um, you know, she's dreamy, she's out there, no one knows what she's talking about all the time. She's a little gaga. And, but I think what, what I relate to in that is that she is um, a little bit suspended between realms, a little bit, if, if not what we would call psychic, one of those people who is so sensitive, like Natasha in War and Peace. She's so sensitive. She's totally earthbound. She's not a witch, but she's so sensitive to what's going on around her that you have to go, how did she know that? at that moment. And that uh, that's Elsa. And that also is, I think, part of the dreaminess of the entire opera in the music and the story that um, that has to be factored in when you're asking the question of what is this? In, in, in coming into this conversation, I kept thinking that Orchard was the most interesting character. But <laughs> now that I'm talking to you, I'm wondering if Elsa's actually the most interesting character in this opera. <laughs> Orchard is the easiest to love because she's the witch. She's the wicked witch. And, you know, we're all a little bit of that, too. And, you know, one thing I love about Orchard is every time she's right on the point of winning something, she loses it because she can't help running front center stage and say, aha, I got all of you fools this time. <laughs> at the end of Act 2, you wrote in your book something to the, the extent of, at the end of Act 2, you'll hear people coming out either talking about politics or talking about um, um, uh, relationships. And... At the end of Act Two on Sunday, there was a couple who was behind me who kept talking about like, "Wow, relationships! That's a that's that's an amazing, amazingly heavy responsibility for Elsa to kind of not ask your husband, hey, what's your name? Um, where are you from?'" When you say relationships and that people are talking about it, 
it makes me think that that is exactly what this opera is talking about. Mm. Whether they are interpersonal between two people, a married couple, um, or between strangers who happen to be the same two people in this one, uh, or between the fractions of a nation or proto-nation and nations within each other or against each other, and, of course, humanity at the divide. It, the, all the issues up and down mm -hmm. and, and across and diagonally are the issue at stake here is relationships. And she has a tremendous burden. Here she has been in, been in an unsafe situation for herself before Lohengrin arrives. And when he does arrive, she's expected to put all of her trust in this fellow that she doesn't he's, she doesn't know a thing about him other than he's got some nice clothes well a, a very iron shirt um when i say that we we relate these characters in a deep way i don't mean to say we relate to them in a direct way there are these people and you know out there who you are if there are realists out there who are going to say why can't we just see what the composer intended? Said, like, well, well, a lot of good reasons. One, because you don't know what the composer intended, and you can't tell what the composer, what the creator, in Bonner's case, because these words in music and staging, what the creator intended, because what he wrote in the stage directions of the libretto may not be the whole story of what he intended. They may be part of what he could do. But two, because a lot has happened in the last 180 years. And when he says, when he puts, say, in rape, a tree on the stage, what he would have seen as a tree is not what you would see as a tree. It's Heisenberg, right? Like that, talk about the mind blowing discovery of the 20th century that observing a thing actually changes what the thing is. What? Yeah, it's crazy. But for our purposes, that's really important. She actually says, Elsa von Rabat. I dreamt of a knight in shining armor. And then he appears. So why can't we see a knight in shining armor? Because if we put a knight in shining armor on the stage in 2023, you're not going to see a knight in shining armor. You're going to see everything that a knight in shining armor has come to stand for, including the comedies since then that Danny Kaye in The Court Jester, Bugs Bunny, uh, Errol Flynn, not a comedy, but, you know, um, all sorts of things. That's what you will see. So you are not seeing what Bogner would have seen. When he says, a knight in shining armor appears, what is he getting at? What what do I need to take away from that? Uh, not a knight in shining armor, because I've seen, actually, I've been to medieval times. I've seen knights in shining armor. That there's one set of advantages to be gained from that. But this idea of well, then another piece of art, like I, I love the, uh, the Rolling Stones emotional rescue. I will be your knight in shining armor coming to your emotional rescue. It's a metaphor. Okay. I love that. They, they did that. They did what you have to do in art. It's like, what's the metaphor here and how do I get to it? And that's why we see wackadoodle things on stage. Some that work, some that don't. 
but it all has to be questioned because to put it on stage without questioning it is also taking a stand and one that I don't care to be a part of. Very provocative. William Berger, thanks for being on front row center. Thanks for giving me a place to, to spout. Thank you so much. Anytime. This is going to be a hard edit. Oh, my God. <laughs> William Berger, always giving a thought-provoking perspective on just about every opera out there, but in this case, Lohengrin. Author of numerous books on opera, on specifically on Wagner, Verdi, Puccini, and more. You can find out more about him on his website, williambergerpresents.com, where he also has several videos that you can purchase for download and viewing at your own pleasure. I am Mike Bolton. Thanks for listening to Front Row Center. I hope you are enjoying this and getting something out of it. No matter what level of opera lover you are, whether you have read everything on Wagner or maybe are more new to this, um, or just getting ready for the HD, I hope this is giving a little different perspective on things. If you've ever sat front row center and would like to be on this podcast, I'm looking for people who can share why they sit in the front row or towards the front or what that experience is like. If you are one of those people, you can email me at mike at michaeljbolton.com and um, let me know that you're interested in being a guest on Front Row Center. Now, we have Helena Brown, who is a member of the Metropolitan Opera Chorus, uh, telling us what life is like in the chorus, what this production has been like, and the, the, the really fascinating depth with which the chorus members view their role in any opera. I think it's an enlightening look at what it's like to be a chorus member, especially at the Metropolitan Opera. So for this podcast of Lohengrin, I thought it was necessary to bring somebody in from the Metropolitan Opera Chorus, especially for those of you who have seen the production or are going to see the production or are going to the HD broadcast of it. And I am super excited to have Helena Brown, member of the Metropolitan Opera Chorus, with us to talk about Life in the Metropolitan Opera Chorus Ensemble. Helena Brown, <laughs> welcome to Front Row Center. Nice pronunciation there. Thank you. <laughs> Happy to be here. It makes up for all the things I get wrong. <laughs> How you doing? Doing well. Today is a day off and I've been getting some much needed rest. Yeah, so you had a performance of Lohengrin today, yesterday rather. When's your yeah. next performance and or rehearsal? The Rosenkavalier rehearsals tomorrow, La Traviata at night. And for the rest, I will have to refer to my handy dandy schedule. <laughs> I also don't want to bore you. We have a happening week. We have champion opening in the very near future. So we're rehearsing that as well. You're busy. Yes. So I'm going to have to come up with some synonyms for busy. <laughs> Because it doesn't seem to cut it. Well, thanks for being, uh, for making time for this and, and especially on your day off. So you, when did you join the chorus? Pre-pandemic or post-pandemic? I officially joined the chorus pre-pandemic. That's kind of like the wonder year before everything went to hell. Can I say that? Sure. <laughs> okay. okay. Yeah. 
it, it was August 2019 that I first stepped foot at the Metropolitan Opera for rehearsals. And what was the opera? It was Porgy and Bess. There are so many stories of what was that first moment like? I think that I was very privileged with the sort of experience that I had because we were doing Porgy and Bess after almost 30 years of it not being on that stage. And we were doing it differently. We were actually welcoming in the Black experience from the lived experiences of Black performers who were right there at that moment. So that community was ours. We created it. Mm. So I really relished in this community building Mm. that we got to do at the Metropolitan Opera of all places. You know, maybe it's not just the Museum of Opera anymore. I don't think so. We we have some relevant art making happening here. Yeah. Well, that's that's a. I mean, that's the thing. How do you go from Porgy and Bess to having to learn twenty four different operas and stagings when there are so many other people in the in the ensemble that have been doing some of these productions for quite a while? Of course, it's a little intimidating to come in, and there are artists on that stage within the chorus, at least who have done that same Zeffirelli production for, let's say, the last 10 years, the last 20 plus years. And, oh my goodness, I love institutional knowledge. You know, there are just so many little nooks and crannies that people know about, and it actually helps you appreciate the production even more. But I I knew the music, and I said, okay, now's the time, do or die. I did not die. I'm still here. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty cool. So you mentioned that working with people who have been on the Met uh, in the ensemble there at the, with the chorus for so long and you having coming in very green. Well, Lohengrin is almost a green experience, I would think, for most of the singers of the chorus because it's just been so long since they've done Lohengrin. Yes. And the staging is so radically different than the past production of it. Did you find that it was sort of a universal experience coming into Lohengrin for the for the chorus? I I think so. I would say so. There are definitely a good chunk of people who are already familiar with Lohengrin and they offered so much musical insight to that process that it actually made it easier. <laughs> nice. You know, we need to talk about colors. Yes, we sure. need to talk about red white and green. So you have, the chorus has these, what seem to be heavy and bulky costumes that have these layers of the color blocked layers inside that are all. Yes. Maneuvered through magnets. So how long did you, did the chorus have to work with these costumes before opening night? Because it's not something you have like two or three rehearsals in. <laughs> no, definitely not. And that's one thing that makes this production so unique. The costumes are so integral to the story and how we interact with them. Not only are we embodying these like dystopian underground sort of people in this society, but we express ourselves in how we cloak ourselves, in how we open the colors, 
when we open the colors and to whom, for what. That's very different. And I really actually love that part of the production. I think from the photos that I'm able to see that it's visually stunning. I wish I could kind of uh, have an out-of-body experience to sit in the hall and see how it looks. But um, yes, to go off of what you were saying, they are heavy. And to an extent, they have to be in order to drape a certain way. And it's working. It's definitely working. You know, there's gravity. There's intention to opening the robes. If they're so light, I don't really think we're going to identify with it in the way that's intended. And it won't translate in how it looks as the light is hitting it on stage. And are the prompters at all helping you with like color cues? This is the white one. This is the green one. (laughs) No, not quite. No, no. And that's why we had such a rehearsal process. Like you said, it's not something you can just do in two to three rehearsals. I would say we had a week or two of rehearsing in the robe. So really the first or second rehearsal that we had that was not just music but staging rehearsal we were already in the robes and getting acquainted with them learning how to operate the magnets and seeing what feels best that also gave our costume department time to fix any issues well before the show especially considering how massive the cast is i I think we have up to 200 people on stage yeah. That's a lot of costumes to fix yeah. if not if it wasn't quite right. And who else, who better to deal with them than sure. the Metropolitan Opera Department? They are amazing. They are the unsung heroes of this yeah. production. I just want to put that out there. Just it's amazing to me. So a lot of times people talk about how when you have a costume on it really helps you identify or really see yourself in the character and the character in you. How has this costume helped you cross that threshold? Mm. I really am very tactile with things. And so I love costumes. I am, I can be very fashionable. (laughs) I, I love fashion and different ways of expressing oneself. The first difficulty that I had personally, and you know, it was just me to work on was to um, come to terms with the fact that we're all wearing the same type of cloaking, right? There's nothing individual with anyone except for the principal characters, you know? And, And they only step away from the main costume a little bit. Like there are some distinct features. And I actually think it's quite brilliant because we were able to focus on the face and how people moved a whole lot more. So I paid attention to that more. I paid attention to how I would take the hood off and what are my hands doing? It's doing something like this. (laughs) No one can see what I'm doing right now, but you could see it. You could describe it if you want. Slowly bringing her fingers over her hair to bring down like hood. peeling back skin. That's what I was thinking yeah. of. Like I, I'm so invested in this cloak. This is protection. This is something that gives me my own personal space. But now I'm coming yeah. out. That's what my character 
does. Mm. I decided. <laughs> um, she she has a name. You don't need to know the name. It's okay. <laughs> As I was on that set and looking at the video projections, I couldn't help but have a totally. Star Wars sort of vibe. Star Wars and mm, let's say Star Trek, actually, because that's the most varied of the two that I just mentioned. And I was thinking, huh, which planet is this, I wonder? So I was just on a completely different planet. We all speak German, (laughs) we decided. Don't ask me why. That's part of some other backstory. That's for another podcast. And we have these cloaks, perhaps for protection from the elements. Because if you remember, there's that big cutout And then Mm -hmm. you just see like Mm -hmm. space out there and you get to see what's going on. That's like the only access to the outside world and we're protecting ourselves from it. That is quite intentional. That's quite powerful. And then to reveal ourselves in order to be present with uh, what's unfolding with Terramond, with the König, it's a big thing. This is something that hasn't happened to us in years. We need to be present for it. We need to, vote yeah. on it with our presence with our with our vocal responses we need to welcome things in we have to keep things moving thank you because that really mm-hmm. um adds a significantly different dimension to anyone who might for anybody who might be going to the ht or seeing this production because it really um again because the chorus is so present in this work um that idea of vulnerability in a, in an unsafe space is mm-hmm. really fascinating to think about. Yes. I, I, I was just thinking, how could it possibly be safe if this is a place where we gather and we are not open to each other? We're hiding from each other, but also hiding from the elements. So any, any instance of danger must feel like immediate heart palpitations. You know, the stakes are so very high and you must respond. You can't just go back and sleep or just leave the room. There are probably consequences for that as well. It's probably an insult or inciting violence. In the midst of political upheaval, religious combativeness between pagan and Christian values. Oh, this is great. Thanks a lot. For- I hope you're glad that you invited me. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah, of course. Brava. Oh, thank Brava. you. <laughs> I, I was just talking. Thank you. No. Polina Brown, this has been a wonderful, wonderful conversation. Thanks for being with us. Absolutely. Awesome indeed. I hope uh, everyone else felt that way the way I did about that conversation. Polina Brown, soprano, who sings in the mezzo section of the metropolitan opera chorus really giving us some interesting insights about what it's like to be a chorister there you can learn more about helena on her website helena-brown.com in just a moment we will be joined by soprano extraordinaire christine gerke but before we get to that i have another message to tell you about This coming fall, I will be the opera expert on a tour of Italy, Milan, and Venice, October 6th through October 12th, six days, 
three days in Milan, three days in Venice. We'll see Le Notte di Figaro at La Scala. We'll see I Due Foscari and La Traviata at La Fenice in Venice. Wonderful sightseeing along the way, all very opera-based. We'll go to the Casa di Riposi of Verdi and so much more. I can't wait to share my insights into these operas and be along for a wonderful operatic experience. This is with a group called Discover My Italy, run by Giovanna Chitti, who was raised in Milan, lives here in the States, and has been doing travel to Italy for decades. So she has this wonderful network of connections that really helps make a really special, unique tour package. Go to discovermyitaly.com and click on the small group tours link and in there scroll down a little bit and you'll see the link for the opera. I'll also put a link to this in the description of today's podcast. I think there are only a few spots left. So if you are interested, check the link as soon as possible or, you know, check out the other tours that she also has. She has, she's in Italy all the time. So She's got a tour for everybody, whether it's fashion, whether it's wine and cheese, whether it's soccer. There's all sorts of things for all sorts of interests. Christine Gerke, fascinating artist, wonderfully, wonderfully articulate and thoughtful interviewee, and just an all-around fascinating person. Here she is to talk about Ortrude on a very limited amount of time off in between performances of Lohengrin. Well, we are in for an incredible treat on Front Row Center because we are joined by the incredible Christine Gerke. Thanks, Christine, Hi. for joining me. Oh my gosh, it's my pleasure. And you're like, this is your day off in between performances <laughs> and you're back in, I guess, Detroit at this moment? For three seconds, yes, because it's tax time and all oh. performers love that time of year. Yeah, so we are going to make the most of our time together and really um, uh, capitalize on your generosity in being with us. Uh, first off, how are you doing? Yeah, I'm I'm okay. You know, I'm uh, you, you all can't see this, but I have a cup of coffee literally the size of my head in front of me. So uh, as far as I'm concerned, that'll get me through just about anything. <laughs> <laughs> right there with you, right there with you. Um, I am thrilled to have seen Lohengrin at the opening was blown away by your performance. It fits your voice so incredibly well. Oh, it was thanks. so exciting to it. hear. We know you're a committed actress. We know you're a wonderful singer. You were literally throwing yourself into the into the role. Um, <laughs> how do you feel about it? How's Ortrude? Oh my gosh, I love her. I love her. Um, I mean, it's funny. We talk about, you know, doing the baddies and singing the baddies and God, they really just are the most fun. Um, but I always start any role that I do with the premise that I'm the only sane one. I'm correct. And I'm entitled to whatever I'm after. So, um, yeah, she, I mean, the whole trying to kill the brother thing. Fine. Except it should have been her throne anyway. They shouldn't have gotten in the way and he would have been just fine. Right. So, really, <laughs> as far as I'm concerned, she's just watching out for herself. You know? That's right. That's right. <laughs> so besides the evilness of her, what are her good qualities? Um, she is incredibly proud of her lineage, of who she is. She is determined. She is really quite brilliant and give this woman a plan and she can do anything. Uh, so I, I have to say there's, 
there's two ways of looking at sort of her relationship with Telramund. Either she has jumped on this bandwagon because she saw that he was a pawn and he could be a means to an end, or she genuinely feels like this is somebody that she likes who could rule with her. Um, And again, the way I look at it the second way, this, of course, it's going to come to pass because she's planned that it is and she will have the throne. And if he has the throne as well, that could be a real uh, softening agent for any people who are very angry as he held a lot of respect in the community. So as far as she's concerned, this whole thing of framing Elza, this is going to work. We'll be on the throne. We're all good. And then Swan Boy shows up. (sighs) Ruins the whole thing. Ruins the whole thing. Way to go, Grail Knight. (laughs) As you were talking, I was thinking about the role itself. And you've got, what, one ensemble in Act 1? But you're on stage, like, the whole time. Yeah, I mean, but this is the interesting thing. You know, this this production, François Girard has, uh, when I looked at the, the presentation the first day, I think four people took pictures of me because I was sitting there giggling <laughs> because I stopped and I said, I'm in every scene. Why am I in act three? I'm supposed to be off having a coffee and come back for three pages at the end. I spent out my coffee. Um, but it is exciting because for me, I love the acting. I love singing, but I love the acting. And I have so much time on stage where I'm not making a sound. And I laughed because uh, um, I'm incredibly lucky. Um, Ryan Johnson, who is the um, director and writer of Knives Out and Glass Onion, Last Jedi, Poker Face, huge Wagner geek. Uh, And we met during The Ring in 2019 and he'd never seen Lohengrin. So I asked if he wanted to come and he came to the second show and (laughs) he was busy texting. Boy, that's some high quality lurking. And I was like, I can lurk with the best of them, friend. But it's so much fun because it gives me an opportunity to find a way to be part of the action without pulling focus, hopefully. So you end up being part of the texture of the storytelling, which you don't always have the opportunity to do. So I'm very grateful to Francois Girard for allowing me to do that. And it allows the audience to really understand the importance of Ortrude's role in everything. Yeah. It's just fascinating. Um, act two is your big moment mm. or your big 90 minutes. Yeah. <laughs> um, I loved what you did with the curse. You know, I said to a friend, I was like, it wasn't just loud, you know, balls of the wall screaming. It was so musical. And, it, and in doing so, you made the text so much more meaningful because it wasn't just a wonkin' wall of sound, which of course you have that ability to do also. I appreciate that very much. Um, it's interesting. I get to work with a lot of, you know, younger colleagues who are coming up and stepping into this repertoire now, which is really exciting. And I'm here to tell you from what I've been hearing, the future is very bright, friends. Um, But one of the things that I always say is, look, you know, your voice chooses this repertoire. If you have the voice that can, you can't force your voice to get over an orchestra like this. You have to sort of ride a wave. And if your voice does that, great. But if you yell at someone for five hours, they're going to be pissed off when they leave. So this is not just about singing this repertoire and being loud. Because if you are at fortissimo and you don't whisper at the same time, you're wasting everyone's time. So I try very hard to find the places. And that, you know, 
90 second aria. It's a nothing burger, but it has so much scope for interest and, and differences and colors. And uh, I have to say, I mean, Yannick is amazing in that pit because uh, when I showed him what I wanted to do, he gets everyone out of the way so I can whisper in one moment. Um, Getting to work with a conductor that will allow you to find all of the colors in your instrument is a real gift. Well, you know what? You mentioned getting out of the way and using the text. Um, When did you learn German? Because, I mean, it's you clearly are so invested in the text as well. Well, you can't not be with, with the through composed operas, you know, and I do a lot of German. I do a lot of Strauss. I do a lot of Wagner and God, I'm not complaining. I'm very lucky, but they are through composed. It's not as though we are having, you know, a Handelaria where, you know, it's A, B, A, and we're repeating things. And then the way that you create the differences is by putting in ornaments or changing the dynamic or changing the line. Um, What we get to lean into is the text and the storytelling. And I love when people say, oh, German, you know, but it's so ugly. And I'm like, you have no idea. It is delicious. There is a mouthful in every sentence that you can choose to use or not. Um, And I know I haven't done it the same way, I don't think, once. Because it's interesting to be able to lean into things at the moment because you are telling a story. It's not as though you're repeating things. Um, I studied German when I was in college. I studied German when I came to the training program at the Metropolitan Opera. Um, I promise you, if I were to go have a conversation with folks in Germany, they're like, you're adorable. That's the wrong tense. But I can get us a beer. I can have a conversation and use the wrong tenses. But I can memorize like a beast and I have great coaches. (laughs) (laughs) In my work at Opera Philadelphia, we were doing a radio interview with Robert Driver and I think somewhere in that conversation, you mentioned about being a music theory geek. Oh, yeah. And how does your music theory geek get excited by Lohengrin? Oh, my God. We don't have enough time in this podcast. (laughs) Um, Again, through composed music of this period, for me, and Lohengrin is, I feel like, the least of this. Because Lohengrin, in the grand scheme of Wagner and his compositions, we all know Bellini was a huge fave of his. This is the most Italianate of his operas. I and and the line and the style, the harmonic structure, there's a lot of it that is leaning towards the Italianate. But there is still so much that leans forward into what we know as the big Wagner. Not that this isn't big, this is gigantic. There's a billion people on stage. But it's it's a bit of a different animal. This allows you to feel as though you are leaning back into this beautiful Italian style. I find a lot of it in act one. Um, Elsa has all of the beautiful sort of Italian, you know, I don't want to say backward looking, but sort of reminiscent music. You get into act two <laughs> and then it goes chromatic crazy. And I get all of the cool stuff. And this is where Wagner is the genius, right? He not only set these two apart in that, Clearly, she's the good girl and Nortrud's the bad girl. But he has made it so clear, not only with the incredible legato lines that that Elsa gets and the sort of more, uh, I always use this term, sort of fjordaligi on crack, uh, you know, these huge jumps and these angular lines that Ortrud gets. It is astounding what Wagner does. Um, 
he gives you with all of the like motifs, he gives you all of these sort of these snippets of things underneath for you to take on board while you're listening to this beautiful line. Every time you hear this, that sort of, um, you know, the, it's just evil sounding the, the harmonies change underneath things that are really linear for Elsa. I, I, I can't help myself and I kind of giggle every time it happens. Um, have you ever dabbled in the dark arts? Have you ever played with a Ouija board or got your- on, you know, we've all gotten to that Ouija board at some point scared the hell out of me. And I was like, Oh, this might be a mistake. I'm going to go put this away. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, yeah. I mean, listen, I, I firmly believe there's, there's something to be careful about and you know, it's, uh, yeah, I don't need to do that again. <laughs> Good. Oh, I mean, not good, good, good also but I mean, good. <laughs> great. Um, tell me what you're doing in Detroit. You're the Associate Artistic Director at Detroit I Opera. Am, um, I am busy. I am juggling kittens, but it is amazing. You know, when COVID hit, um, I had no idea. I lost two years worth of work in one day. We all went through this. It was a terrifying time. I always knew that at some point, you know, we all think as singers, okay, what's, what's the after? What are we going to do? And, you know, I have colleagues who are astounding teachers, lucky singers and amazing coaches. Um, And I love to work with young singers. But I also knew that if I left the opera house, my soul would die. And I knew that I wanted to be part of what comes next. And I knew that I would can't leave. So I always wanted to go into administration. I hadn't planned on doing it probably for another six, seven years yet. But, um, you know. COVID, everybody made a left turn. I was uh, contacted by my now colleagues asking me whether or not I'd be willing to have a conversation about this and uh, spoke to the team. And basically, I couldn't say no to having some stability for my kids and a paycheck. I get a paycheck. Like every two weeks, I get a paycheck. I don't even know what that's like. Insurance. So, insurance. <laughs> it's the weirdest. Thing. I feel like a grown up. It's great. Um, but what's cool is that I, I was tasked with redesigning the training program, which we have done. I've brought my incredible colleague, Nathalie Doucet from Amsterdam. Uh, and uh, she is uh, a Canadian, so we like her and she's close enough. So uh, she is brilliant. And she has helped me to redesign this program. We have our first uh, year finishing up now. We have our, our next year picked already. Um, it's been wonderful. Um, I'm doing that. I help with the casting. I help with development at the company. I am learning a lot on my feet, but mostly I just can't say how much I enjoy getting my hands dirty on the other side of the desk at the same time, because what I do on stage informs that. And I feel like I have a really unique perspective because of it. Brilliant. Well, this has been an extraordinary conversation Thank you for taking time from this busy, busy schedule. Um, I just, I can't thank you It's my pleasure. I'm so happy to chat with you and see you. And I'm sorry, nobody else is seeing you, but he looks really good. (laughs) Aw, that's very sweet. Let's just say she clearly didn't have her glasses on. (laughs) Anyway, brilliant, brilliant stuff. I hope that you've enjoyed this podcast on Lohengrin as part of the Front Row Center series. Thank you to all of our guests, Dr. Margaret Davini from Temple University, Pete Bebo from the Philadelphia Zoo, William Berger from the Metropolitan Opera and author and opera lecturer, 
Metropolitan Opera Chorister and Soprano Helena Brown and Soprano Christine Gerke for sharing their insights into all things Lohengrin and all things related to Lohengrin. We have more podcasts coming up. We have a couple that are basically in the can that we need to do some editing on, that I need to do some editing on. Episodes on La Traviata, including an interview with Hermana Leyajo, the soprano. I have a great podcast coming up on Ladies de Amore, uh, including an interview with Patrick Carpizzi. We have one planned coming up on spirituality and faith in Aida that we're, that's slowly taking shape. And uh, I'm hoping to do some newer works as well as the season allows. Don't forget to subscribe to the RSS feed for Front Row Center so you are alerted when new episodes come out. But more stuff is on the way. Comments, critiques, words of support, you can email me at mike at michaeljbolton.com. Don't forget to check out information on Serenades Coral Travel at serenadescoral.com. And if you are interested in that trip to Italy that I'm with, with discovermyitaly.com, check that out. It's October 6th through the 12th, three days in Milan, three days in Venice, three operas, great people, wonderful times. And check that out again at discovermyitaly.com. My name is Mike Bolton. Thanks for listening. I really appreciate it. I got so many comments and uh, so much support from the episode on Medea. I'm really hoping to keep the, uh, the quality of the content high, fingers crossed. Thanks for spending the past hour or so with us. If you are interested in hearing the unedited versions of some of these interviews, some of them are 40, 50 minutes long, let me know that by dropping me an email as well at mike at michaeljbolton.com. Thanks so much for listening, and uh, we will be back soon with a new episode for Front Row Center. That was an Alexandrian Media podcast. <laughs> <laughs>